Many of our world's most powerful players are seemingly taking consecutive turns faster than ever, removing stability from what was once deemed the sole dominant game in town. The largest losers may become those caught off guard, willfully denying it's happening in real time, and ultimately ill-prepared for rapid changes the next emerging financial system may bring about. This week, more major signposts signifying changes in the global financial system are increasingly afoot, especially within the eastern portion of our more multipolar world to come. But before we get into that deep subject, commodity markets not trading according to their fundamental supply-demand factors, that's become the norm in our overly fiat financialized world. The real values of many of the things that we need for our modern ways of life have become suppressed and papered over for a long time now in a myriad of ways. A reversion back towards higher commodity values is only just kick-starting, and it's likely to exacerbate in the years of coming. We begin this week with a brief update at the dysfunctional City of London Metals Exchange, where after recently canceling long nickel contracts just 10 days ago, trying to restart LME nickel trading all this week has resulted in a bumbling mess of bad headlines. Oli Hansen, head of commodities at Saxo Bank, was quoted stating, Shanghai is the de facto center for nickel price discovery right now. Not surprising, for if you've been paying attention to commodity markets in the 21st century thus far, you would likely agree that increasing Chinese dominance on not merely commodity demand, but also eventually commodity price discovery, is not so much a question of if, more so of when, that may become most common. Welcome to the ring, where tension and commotion are as high as any boxing match. Only there are no jabs exchanged here, just quick fire transactions between buyers and sellers. The prize? The best price for tin, or whatever metal is up for grabs. This is the London Metal Exchange, the last physical trading floor in Europe. It is the world centre for the trade of industrial metals. Last year, $10.3 trillion worth of metals were exchanged at the LME. This sets the opening and closing prices for each metal on the global market. But despite the billions traded in this room, the vast majority never leaves the ring. In fact, only 2% of the metal traded here is ever physically collected. The amount of needless leverage applied to base metal commodity price discovery markets for the sake of speculative trading profits reminds me of admittance from back in 2014, back when the London Gold Silver Fix fiasco publicly exposed the ridiculous leverage involved in both the silver and gold markets then and still now. Annual physical silver demand is something along the lines of 30 billion per year in newly mined and recycled physical silver, mostly used for the things we need for our modern lives. Yet there was the City of London back then having a heavy hand in the leveraged silver price discovery game still ongoing something then around the tune of over 166 factors of leveraged fiat financialized mass trading derivatives versus actual annual physical demand in a year. The physical silver market, as the physical nickel market has recently revealed itself, has long been an accident waiting to happen and surprises to the upside, especially when that kind of leverage goes exponentially long bet winning, short squeezing in earnest for the real deliverable metal. Hello there, on behalf of SDBullion.com, this is James Anderson with a quick SDBullion market update. Before we go further, please smash the like button so other sound money stackers can also see this content. And be sure to subscribe to our SDBullion channel so you can get our latest market coverages 
and also a chance at winning Incredible Bullion giveaways like this one. When you love silver as much as me, it's really easy to get carried away. Sometimes I just can't keep my hands off of a good deal. So when SD Bullion told me that they wanted to give away some silver for free, I was happy to lend my hands, I mean voice, for the cause. Now how much silver are they giving away, you ask? Boom, yes, 500 brand new Silver Eagles will be going to one of you, and all you have to do is click the link down below and enter for your chance to win, and you could be the next lucky recipient of a phone call like this. Hi Paul, this is Dr. Tyler Wall, CEO of SD Bullion. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Well, I'm calling you to let you know that you won the SD Bullion giveaway of a monster box of Silver Eagles. Well, thank you so much. This really made my day. So click the link below and enter because the next big winner of 500 Silver Eagles could be you. Yep, okay, got it. Click the link below to enter our new 500 ounce American Silver Eagle coin type two giveaway contest. And good luck to all of you who take part. Silver and gold had chop downs in spot price action this week. The silver spot price closed just under 25 an ounce. Gold finished just above 1920 an ounce. With a brief intra week trading, with brief intra week trading touching just below 1900 an ounce. The gold silver ratio closed even around 77. Right around the time when the nickel market was blowing up in LME short faces last week. Commodity desk head of Goldman Sachs took the Bloomberg News to pound the table on gold's outlook for the remainder of this year. Jeff Curry succinctly states gold's medium-term bullish case in a quick soundbite. You've just recently raised your price target. How high does it go and what gets it there? All right, back, it's a perfect storm for gold right now. Um, there's three legs to the story. One, you have really strong investor demand for gold over concerns about inflation, recessions, <clears throat> downturn in some place like Europe. The second leg of it is central bank buying. And I think you may have alluded to this, is that you know with the situation in Russia, they're likely to accumulate dollar and euro um, reserves that they can't do anything with. What can they do with it? Buy gold. Um, and then you have central banks you know, in places like China, Turkey, diversifying for de-dollarization reasons. Um, and then you have diversification reasons in places like uh, Brazil and India. So central bank demand you know, up somewhere around 750 tons this year, all-time record. Uh, by the way, just going back to the fear-driven demand, the investor demand, that ETF is likely to break 4,000 tons, up another 600 tons, um, given our forecast. And then finally, you can't forget about the physical demand for gold, particularly from places like China and India. Fourth quarter, also very, very strong. You put it all together, it's the strongest demand from all three channels that we've ever seen. The last time we saw this type of demand strength across the board was 2010, 2011, and gold rallied 70%. Our target is 2,500, which suggests about $500 more upside from here. Pointed language out of the Russian Federation this week as President Putin stated, quote, illegitimate freezing of some of the currency reserves of the Bank of Russia marks the end of reliability of so-called first-class assets. The U.S. and EU have defaulted their obligations to Russia. Now everybody knows that financial reserves can simply be stolen. Of course, what Putin's referring to, foreign central bank reserve assets like U.S. Treasuries and others, on Russia's balance sheet, They've been recently repudiated, essentially 
expunged. They're not worth anything. The BRIC nations and Saudi Arabia, they've been watching and they've been making major headlines this week, reflecting big moves that they're making to shore up their national security interests moving forward. It's obvious that these nations are moving towards further bilateral direct trade agreements where the reserve asset they likely will end up stacking will be gold bullion, more so than IOU promises from the West especially. This increasing trend is Fiat Federal Reserve note demand negative long term, and more on that in a moment. Saudi Arabia is not merely increasingly seeking more military protection from Russia. They also appear to add direct oil for yuan trade settlements, where of course they could also redeem proceeds at the Shanghai Gold Exchange as they prefer bullion to yuan reserves. China, including Taiwan, is nearly one-third of Saudi Arabia's oil demand. It makes sense that Saudi Arabia would cater to their biggest client's desire moving forwards. Note that U.S. demand from Saudi Arabia is only in the single digits. In terms of U.S. oil supply from abroad, here's a handy video illustrating where we have increasingly gotten our oil since the Fiat Federal Reserve petrodollar system kicked off in 1973. Of course, we have seen Petro Yuan headlines like this before now, and that's been going on for a handful of years running. And still today, financial media will follow up citing market analysts who will fail to cite critical things which are likely to emerge. For instance, not mentioned in this naysaying article is the fact that the settlement of gold for Yuan in Shanghai, with the ability to then export said gold abroad, and the fact that the Bank for International Settlements is actively working on wholesale CBDC cross-border direct payment systems, which will ultimately be major bearish for U.S. dollar demand, as many sovereign nations will become freer in their ability to trade directly with one another, with near no other intermediaries or fiat U.S. dollars in between. The following, or some technologies akin, are likely coming this decade, whether we like it or not. Cross-border payments can be slow and expensive, but does it have to be? Domestic payments are usually fast and inexpensive because most banks connect to a single national payments platform. But there is no single international platform for cross-border payments. Instead, to make cross-border payments, banks need to hold foreign currency accounts with banks in other countries. This is the decades-old model of correspondent banking. A single cross-border payment may pass through multiple correspondent banks, adding costs and delays along the way. But what if we could merge all these separate banking systems and bring them onto one single common platform? That's the goal of Project Dunbar. We are exploring the benefits of a single international payments platform, similar to the national platforms that many developed economies rely upon. This single international platform will connect multiple central banks and commercial banks. Each central bank will be able to use this shared platform to issue their digital currencies, or CBDCs. Banks can then use these CBDCs in multiple currencies to make payments to each other. These payments would be direct from bank to bank with no intermediaries. 
This streamlined process means payments will be cheaper and faster. Let's see how it works, step by step. First, central banks issue their CBDCs, representing different currencies on the shared platform. Banks will be able to hold and transact with both local and foreign CBDCs. Local banks can exchange for CBDCs using their central bank balances on domestic payments networks. Non-local banks will be able to exchange CBDCs with other banks and hold CBDCs even from countries they do not have a presence in. As a result, it will be possible for all banks to pay each other directly in all the different CBDCs. However, while we can look forward to streamlined, cheaper and faster cross-border payments, there are challenges to overcome. The first challenge is governance. How do we get multiple central banks to share a common platform? Who will own and operate the platform? Can we resolve the national security concerns that come from sharing critical infrastructures with other central banks? The second challenge is access. How do we allow non-local banks to access and make payments with CBDCs? Can central banks trust banks from other jurisdictions when they do not supervise those banks directly? The final challenge is regulations and jurisdictional boundaries. Payment regulations are different in each country, so how do we simplify the cross-border payments flow while respecting these differences? BIS is working with multiple partners to solve these challenges. The ultimate goal is for a common settlement platform for multi-CBDCs in order to make cross-border payments cheaper, faster and safer. Finally, to close this week, I want to give you a brief preview of a masterclass in major macro changes that we briefly covered here today. A publicly available podcast and transcript of an interview of macro analyst Luke Roman by Grant Williams. It runs for an hour and 20 minutes, but Luke does an excellent job laying out the forces at play from the 1971 U.S. default on gold all the way to what we are increasingly seeing in the news today. It's worth your time to either listen to it and or scan the transcript and perhaps even share it with those who might also benefit from the information. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes and comment section below, and I'm going to also give you a brief preview to close. As always, to you out there, take great care of yourselves and those you love. Remember that defense report we talked about where they talked about the excess Chinese buying of treasuries undervalued the yuan, overvalued the dollar, deindustrialized the U.S., made the U.S. defense industrial base weaker vis-a-vis China, and we need to stop this. This reverses that. All of a sudden, closing the FX reserves window, no one's going to buy FX reserves anymore. Even if they just buy less, forget about not buying them anymore. They buy less, that means the Fed's got to buy more, which means the Fed's going to have to do more deficit financing via the printing press. And we know what that did to the dollar, what that did to inflation, because we saw it from 2020 through 2021 and even, even forward. So the bad news is, is it's if you hold a lot of bonds, it's 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 a sea change. It's the end of a 40-year bond bull market on a real basis. Um, if you own industrials, it's really good because all of a sudden, this structural dollar system component that was preventing 
the reshoring of American manufacture. They prevented the U.S. from having enough masks in COVID. It's preventing us from being able to be in, you know, in, industrially sufficient enough to, to, to really stick it to China for siding with Russia. That will change over time. Uh, and you've seen hints of it already. When you see Ohio getting an Intel fab and the CEO of Intel saying, we're going we're gonna to make Ohio the big, one of the biggest Intel manufacturing regions in the world. Like, what? Like, Ohio was ground zero of, of the people who took it in the shorts from 1973 to present under this deal. When you replay the narrative that's been put around this, this kind of alternate system that's been built quietly in plain sight by the Chinese, the Russians, uh, and everybody else, it's always been framed as a way to attack the US, as a way to attack the dollar. And the reality of it has been, it was in their own national security interest, right? Now we're talking about this as a national security interest. And as you've laid out so perfectly, this was always a national security risk for China, for Russia, for the Saudis, for all these guys. Now we reach this kind of bizarre point where, as you've just explained, the dollar system is potentially a national security risk for the US. And so we finally have a bizarre situation where for the first time, it's in almost everybody's interest to find a way to end the dollar system and to transition to a new system that works better for everybody. However, it seems like the only way to do that is through conflict because it's the only way to, as you say, to disguise what's really going on here and to be able to to come up with a reason that plays well politically other than saying the system's broken and the net effect of that is your standard of living is going to go down dramatically and the price of your assets is going to get cut in half potentially. So what better way to do that than to create something out of this, which is a conflict between a group of nations who are all really trying to secure their own futures out of the same system? It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, I, I tweeted this the other day where where – if you are frustrated with the U.S.'s seeming inability to do anything to Putin without also, you know, sort of blowing off our own arm or leg or worse, but you also think that the dollar system is still a net benefit to the U.S., like those two things are contradictory, mutually exclusive positions. I mean, the the reason at its core that once China sides with Russia, there's not a lot we can do is because we have so much of our own production sitting in China. We, we can't cut off China. We'll hyperinflate our own economy like we're just trying to hyperinflate the Russians almost instantly. The reason why you're seeing things like the Saudis say to us, as they have last week, we're going with the Russians, which means we're going with the Chinese, is because the Chinese are their biggest client. They sell way more oil to the Chinese. They can't make the Chinese unhappy. They have to do – they have to keep their biggest client happy. When you see absurdities like the U.S. administration flying to Venezuela and to Iran over the weekend right. and effectively panhandling for oil yeah. from – I mean they've literally been trying to tip these regimes over for 20 to 40 years. And that – I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of those conversations, right? But the fact that we had to do that, all of these things are mere symptoms of a dollar system that became a victim of its own success where literally – we got dollar Dutch disease. We, we're the Saudi Arabia of dollars. We'll provide dollars for everybody, and you guys make all the stuff, and we'll give you the dollars. And like the other side of that deal is you got to keep dollars as good as gold for oil. And if you don't, they've got to go away. And if they go away, well, they got all your factories. Well, 
you got no options. And so then it just becomes a matter of, again, like you just said, managing the optics of the transition. And I, and I think that's what we're watching. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's very interesting. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to give our video a thumbs up. To keep getting bullion-related news and industry insights, be sure to subscribe to our channel. Finally, hit that alert button so you know when we publish fresh content. Thank you.